number one reason why people don't buy is that they just get to the PDP and they stop and it's because of fit. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 59, and today's guest is Bill Adler. Bill is the co-founder, CEO, and president of TrueFit. He's been a longtime industry friend, and his company has changed the shopping landscape for consumers, making it easier for them to purchase shoes and apparel online with more confidence about the size they buy. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Branstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Bill Adler. Bill brings 30 years of leadership and experience building global brands and scaling successful businesses across retail, software, and services. Bill is the co-founder, CEO, and president of TrueFit since 2010. Before he founded TrueFit, he was an executive in residence and consultant with Battery Ventures. And prior to that, he was with Timberland, where he founded Timberland Business Direct, the company's B2B operation. Bill, welcome to the show. Mark, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I, I did not realize, uh, although I've known you for a long time, I did not know the uh, the Timberland uh, component in, in your career. I didn't realize you were kind of a shoe dog as well. You know, I spent seven years at, uh, at Madden, uh, which is probably wh where we first met. Uh, so yeah, so you're a shoe guy. I am a shoe guy. Um, I'm originally an apparel guy. I come from four generations of um, apparel people. My grandfather uh, this is a podcast. You can't see this, but this is my my grandfather was the um, uh, this is him in a doer's ad in 1965. He was the CEO of the oldest and largest men's apparel company in America, which eventually became part of Phillips Van Heusen. So I'm an apparel guy first and then a footwear guy, but it makes me really understand the market. That looked like any, our, our listeners can't see it, as you said, but uh, that ad looks like he was out of Mad Men. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He was one of those guys. I don't know how they got through the day with those martinis, but they made a lot of great clothes. <laughs> so, you know, as uh, I mentioned to you and, and as our listeners uh, have come to become accustomed, you know, I like to start off getting, you know, the, the guest's first story, kind of the brief background of, you know, where you grew up and, and perhaps, as you just mentioned, you know, about your grandfather and, and apparel, you know, was there something in your background that might have suggested where you'd end up uh, in your career? Yeah, it's a good question. I love the question. I feel like the context of everyone's life matters. I, yeah, from from the earliest part of life, my grandfather loomed large. I really feel like that is part of my, that might be sort of where my story begins. Um, even back, you know, three generations prior to that, they were apparel guys from Germany and came over. And I have always uh, really felt an affinity for the forward apparel markets and retail and entrepreneurship. I mean, also, like, his story is fascinating. They were uh, four brothers um, that were doing manufacturing out of Rochester, New York. 
they built a huge, they were producing basically, but this was before brands. There were no brands until the 1970s. So they were producing all the manufacturing, which was sold through independents or department stores. And uh, they built a really big business and were living uh, a nice life. And then the depression happened. They lost everything. And he was in Stanford. He left his grandfather, his father lost everything in the depression. He dropped out of Stanford and then went back to um, upstate New York and kind of grabbed the bag and built back up. And, um, you know, I think just being part of the industry and hearing the story of overcoming adversity and building back up has always been part of my fabric. And, um, you know, I was very fortunate to have great parents who were also entrepreneurs and put values first. So, yeah, that's kind of where I come from. And, and you grew up in Cleveland. I, grew, I did. I grew up in the same house in Shaker Heights, Ohio for 18 great years. I was very fortunate to have a happy childhood, a long-serving sports fan, uh, I would say, um, but that should be the least of anyone's worries. And um, I love Cleveland. I, I think, uh, I, as, as I like to say, it's, there are fewer jerks per square feet coming out of Cleveland. Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to be a real jerk coming out of the Midwest. You know, you got to really be uh, you know, some nice people that come out of there. So, um, yeah, Cleveland's great. So I, I have a, a good friend, uh, shout out to uh, my friend, Cliff Zucker. Cliff is, and his family are from, uh, Cleveland as well. And he has a nephew, Max, uh, Max Brandstetter, who is the uh, person who does all the editing for this podcast. And, and really the first person the, to be able to help me or was helping me get going in the podcast kind of oh, as, wow. as 2020 turned, uh, this is right before the pandemic, uh, I had met him and said, you know, hey, would you, would you help me? And, you know, we kind of crafted the theme for the show and the name and the music and, and what have you. And then, uh, you know, the, the week before the world shut down, uh, or a few weeks before is when I did my first show. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned to you, this is episode 59, been a good run and met a lot of good people. Now, being Cleveland, you also um, uh, Big Ten guy, Wisconsin undergrad, and then uh, Michigan, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, I have to look up the Zuckers. Uh, they, sound, they sound great. But um, yeah, I grew, my parents, um, who were very you know, big mentors in my life, went both went to Wisconsin-Madison, which was a big school coming out of Cleveland. And um, it was really the only school that I applied to. I had one backup, but I really wanted to go. That's where I wanted to go. And I was forced to get in. That would have been awkward. Um, and I had a great time there and then um, did some other entrepreneurial things for a while. And then going back to business school and I, I went to Michigan. I didn't tell anybody in Cleveland I went to Michigan. But of course, they're all big Ohio State fans. But uh, I loved it my biggest education out of business school at university of michigan was my wife who i met there and i certainly learned more from her than i learned in business school yeah 20 year anniversary coming up tomorrow oh that's very nice uh, happy anniversary yeah. thank you so we're recording the show here in uh, you know june of, of 2022 um you know I'd like to get a sense and, and we'll go back through your career a bit but you know get a sense from somebody that you know is out in the business uh, world like you are you know we've got gas prices averaging you know five bucks a gallon uh you know i saw five dollars and 15 cents in new jersey today for regular um, we've got the fed increasing interest rates um, some people thinking that we're heading into a recession. I'm already seeing businesses uh, that had open jobs starting to pull back, starting to look at expense reductions. Well, what's your sense um, from 
what you're seeing with your clients, you get so much data to pour through. Um, wh- what do you think? Yeah, it's a, it's a big question. Um, lots of opinions. I certainly don't uh, own the truth or know the truth. I can tell you what I think, which is, I guess, three things. Number one, I would say, I think it's a really necessary correction. I mean, you know, if you've lived through enough, I'm, I'm in, in my early 50s, I've lived through enough of these cycles that you kind of know when things are clicking and you know when you're out of equilibrium. As an investor, you're an investor, Mark. I'm, you know, I just am investing. You sort of know when you're in hype cycles. Um, and we were in one. You've compounded that. I mean, valuations were at an all-time high last year. Everything was trading on an average average at 17x forward revenues. It's back down to its usual sort of eight, nine. And, you know, when you combine that with all the other macro conditions and the you know, supply chain woes and the war and COVID and all these other things, um, we got out of whack, right? I mean, the cost of money was too low, uh, capital was too cheap, growth at all costs led to crazy valuations. And here we are. We've been here before. This has happened. And so I, I think it may be a little painful, but I think it's a good thing overall. I think that investors are shifting their focus from growth at all costs to profitable growth, sensible growth, uh, profitability, that's a good thing. So we're back to basics, we're back to the fundamentals. I think sustainable growth is a good thing. Um, we've got to unwind this massive federal balance sheet. Uh, I hope they can do the soft landing that they speak of. I'm glad I don't work for the Fed. Uh, so number one, I think it's a necessary correction and I hope it won't be too painful. Maybe 18 months, something like that. I think for, from our perspective, um, number two, is what are we hearing from clients? So I, I think a lot of, we, we sell, as you know, to retailers and um, specifically to soft good retailers. And I, so, you know, first of all, there's this generational shift. COVID moved things really dramatically toward, um, toward at home and, in, and online. And that hadn't actually happened very much in the footwear and apparel space. So um, just as a sidestep, it's a two and a half trillion dollar global market. It's by far the largest consumer market in the world. And it, it kind of hasn't had its day yet uh, from a digital perspective. If you think about music and movies and books and everything else, like those are obviously highly penetrated digital creative markets. So I feel like it's still early innings. And when uh, in the soft goods space, and when things shifted in COVID, grocery, you know, is, a, is, is like digital at home now. I think we're on our way to so McKinsey's is reporting that we'll go from 20 to 40% digital uh, for, for, for this. So I think for, we're fairly insulated in that. Um, I think that shift is on as long as people are getting out and going to church and synagogue and funerals and graduations and events, uh, the markets move and, um, and people need to, uh, to, uh, to buy, buy clothes. Um, I think number three, I would say, but it's, I think efficiency is important, right? So consumers are wiser. Uh, they have power again. Um, prices have come down in footwear and apparel. Prices have come down marginally for a while. Uh, maybe they go up a little bit with inflationary terms, but they're going to come back down. Um, there's an eco-related theme there. I think people don't want to destroy the planet by over, um, you know, buying. So it's about efficient buying. I think that's maybe the shift that I'm seeing. Um, we're very fortunate truth it that we have an indispensable product that, um, you know, is kind of a need to have, uh, cause you know, fits the number one reason why people don't buy. So, so solving that problem is helpful in good times and in tough times. But, um, you know, look, I, I would just say closing, I, I think these shifts create opportunities and if you're decisive, you know, they, they become opportunities. So it's like anything, the, the great 
retailers and brands who know how to navigate and are decisive and stick to the fundamentals and serve consumers with distinction will win. And I think people that are not focused on discipline will. Right. Well, and, and for my listeners, Bill just referred to in closing, that was only his opening monologue. We're not letting him get away that quickly. We still have a lot more questions uh, for him. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's take a jump back a little bit earlier in your career. Let's talk about Timberland. Um, so, you know, when you were there, um, still relatively early in digital, kind of set the stage, you know, why did you go there? What were you charged with? And, you know, by the time you left, you know, what kind of progress did you feel that you made? Well, I, I was in business school and I was, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do afterwards. I was on a group of, I was on a committee, a group of people that were bringing other speak, speakers to campus. And we got Jeff Swartz to come. Jeff was the CEO of, of Timberland at the time. And if anyone who's listening has ever listened to Jeff Swartz, I mean, he really knocks your socks off. He's an unbelievable speaker. So I ended up having dinner with him and getting to know him. And I was, I, I was like, wow, this guy's amazing. Uh, and then, you know, I followed up and it turned out there was an opportunity to work there. And I got a chance to interview. I had a three hour interview with Jeff. And I remember I walked out of the interview and I called my then fiance, my now wife. And I, I said something like, like, I don't know what I would be doing here, but I'm pretty sure I got to do this. <laughs> this guy's amazing and it's going to be wild. And it's kind of like that. I mean, so I spent almost eight years um, there. I spent about half of it trying to take his vision and integrate it into strategic plans, um, which was around values and being a values-driven brand globally and uh, working strategically with other GMs. And then um, I ran a business, as you mentioned, the, the business direct business and, and um, help you know, advise on e-commerce. Troy Brown, who you might know, ran, ran e-commerce at the time, and I was among uh, advisors and helping on that. Early days of, of e-com, I remember we did the first design your own boot with Fluid, the agents had in New York. Those are good, yeah, those sure. are good times. I, I, yeah, sure. Yeah, I know, I know Fluid well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what they're up to now, but those were good days. Those were like early days. We were trying to figure out like how to do it all, and I, got, I built that business up. It was a lot of fun. Uh, made it profitable and good growth and integrated into some other parts of the company. And then, and then Timberland prepared to sell uh, for sale um, to VF Corp and a bunch of us transitioned to, to other exciting things. But I, I will close by saying the people at Timberland were the best people ever. I, I run a company now. I try really hard to make it as close to that culture as I can. It's incredible. So in your role from an e-commerce uh, perspective there, you know, I've, I've worked in a number of wholesale businesses and I'm presuming that Timberland, a big part of their business was, was uh, wholesale. I'm guessing it was challenging. Was it challenging to be the direct to consumer guy in a wholesale company? Yeah. I mean, Timberland was a $2 billion company. This is a, like you said, this is a common story for many people that we know our friends. Like Timberland was about a $2 billion company. I don't know, 200 million of it was stores and, and uh, e-com. And then like e-com at the time was like 20 million. So, you know, it's one of these cautionary tales where the people that are involved in e-commerce have actually a very small financial role in the overall public, in this case, publicly traded Results, but like an enormously outsized impact on the window to the brand and how it's perceived. And that challenge is, I think, a very delicate one for many people probably listening uh, who run uh, e-com sites for, um, you know, for brands. It's, it gave me a real visceral understanding of how hard that is for them. And um, 
And also like just classic stuff like trade-offs. At the end of the day, you want to invest in direct, you want to do all these things with consumer, but you know, you, you know, wholesale pays the pays the bills. So it, you know, those tensions probably haven't gone away. But I, if you bring it to the fore, I think uh, you know we work with lots and lots of brands, and I would say the brands have more power now. Um, you know, people are um, people are really building great consumer brands and, and going direct, obviously, with the rise of their digitally native brands. Do you have a direct to consumer business? I enjoy connecting with guests on this podcast because it reminds me what I love to do strategic and tactical consulting for businesses like yours. If you'd like to speak with me about your business and see how you can add a fresh set of eyes to your team, contact me at mark at detailsinteractive.com. Now let's get back to the marketing playbook. You finish up with uh, Timberland and now you're thinking about what the next thing to do is. So, you know, lay the groundwork for us. Um, True Fit from Timberland to True Fit, where the idea comes from. Um, how do you go about, you know, kind of a high level, how do you go about getting started? Uh, I loved every moment at Timberland. I thought about almost nothing else when I was there. I was so enthralled. People would make fun of me because I would wear Timberland head to toe. Like I was really, I really drank the, the Kool-Aid. When I left Timberland, a bunch of us, you know, kind of left around that time. And I was fortunate to be able to go to a venture capital firm um, and park a little bit there. I, it was one of these kind of, EIRs, you know, these executive or entrepreneur and residences, I think they're different types, you know, there's formal ones and informal. I, mine was kind of an informal gig. Um, I knew some of the partners and they, they wanted, uh, you know, some of us around to collaborate on deals and look at opportunities. And I almost moved to Texas. If we, like, it was one of these things where like, if you look at a deal and get the deal, like heads up, you're going to Texas. Right? I almost moved to Israel. That's something my wife was like, all right. So none of those happened. The firm didn't get those deals, so I didn't jump in. But in the meantime, I was I was thinking reflectively about what I wanted to do proactively, and I was thinking about kind of a Spotify for fashion uh, concept, and I was really passionate about that. I thought that the timing was right to 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 work on that, um, and I was more interested in trying to do that B two B because I thought that. Uh, it's such a fragmented market, as you know. We played in it. I mean, there's 20,000 brands that make up 80% of the revenue. It's like, and then there's a long tail after that. It's a it's a two trillion dollar market. So it's it's like it's huge. It's so much bigger than movies and music. And I thought the best way to uh, do that was not. I was not thinking like what Stitch Fix and others have done. I was thinking more about um, you know could we figure out a way to make it uh, a digitally great experience to shop all these great retail sites so anyway i met um i met two other uh young co-founders who had been coming out of babson b school uh jessica and romney who are brilliant and passionate and they had started something called my true fit which was a a, a cool a really cool website that oprah had said was one of her favorite things and they were like an overnight success and uh, i met them and we we all fell in love with with what we might be able to do if we pivoted that um, concept to a B to B one. And now that's what Truefit became. In like 2009, we teamed up. I rolled out of the firm. I made an investment, um, joined them as a, as a third. And, um, and off we went and kind of re, rebuilt the company from a B to B perspective um, using the original um, concepts. So it's, it's been a wild ride. And, and so the, the problem that you were trying to solve 
then and, and have presumably continued to do is what? Again, it's, it's a $2 trillion market. And according to Mintel and Bain and others that have looked at this, the number one reason why people don't buy is that they just get to the PDP and they stop and it's because of fit. Uh, and there are other things that are going on. Well, I like it, what's going to feel like, uh, but fits size fit, all of that flatter is a, just a kind of a fundamental barrier. And so we, you know, Zappos took an approach that said, no problem buy buy four and return three and, and called it a marketing expense, but no one else aside from Zappos. Now Amazon can do that. So we, uh, we invented a way to um, organize everyone's data and bring a really seamless experience on the PDP that would keep people moving through and not stop. Um, and, and so we provide now lots of different ways to, uh, to give size and fit advice on the product page. It's like kind of revolutionary common sense. People get to the site, they love the site, they love the thing they pick, they get to the PDP, we just want to like have them keep going. We don't want size and fit to be part of the cognitive experience of shopping, right? And I, I think if we look back on this in a few years, I don't think it will be. I think it'll just be like, uh, this will be table stakes and people will just have that problem uh, ticked off the list. For those that don't know TrueFit, um, give us some brands that you can talk about that you're working with. Just would help people ground and say, you know, next time they go to X site, they might see TrueFit on it. Oh, gosh, Mark, you know, that's hard. I mean, all of our partners are our favorite. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't have to doesn't have to be favorites. Just pick one or two that. Uh... Uh, um, I mean, there's just so I'll give different types of examples of the risk. Uh, I mean, we work with big, large, multi-brand retailers like Macy's and Neiman. We work with great direct brands like uh, Under Armour and J. Crew, Madewell, Bowdoin. And, uh, and really cool up and coming, uh, rising brands like Faraday. Um, I don't know. This is just a mix lands End. like the, the, we work with hundreds of really great. We're so, so grateful to work with the, with the biggest breast, um, best brands. And, and, uh, that's, a, that's never a fun exercise because you kind of want to list all of them. Yeah, no, I understand. So when you started to build and, you know, I feel like I probably met you, you know, I was at Madden starting in 2011. So you guys were just yeah. getting going. What was your, would you say, um, was one of your bigger challenges in getting brands to adopt your, your tool? That's an interesting question. So, so back then brands gave us data, like we used to collect tech pack data and uh you know like for last data and um, garment spec sheets i'm saying that because it's an indication of you're like really they would do that and i think it's a i think it's representative of how big a problem it is so you know back in 10 years ago jessica and i would go around i, mean, I think i probably met with 2000 brands personally explaining the concept of the fashion genome which we you know politely barred from Pandora's music uh, uh, database concept. And um, we wanted to really, we, 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 we wanted to be able to take all the best data from brands, which is the product information, and all the data that's best from the retailers, which is transaction primarily and, and traffic uh, data, and then get people to sign up. And then we could have like direct information about the consumer, uh, similar to how FinTech does it, right? You sign up once, at Afterpay and then you travel around or Honey. And we wanted, we really believe that those three data sets together created a really uh, great elixir. Um, and we had proven that already in MyTrueFit at a very uh, lower scale. So we knew that at scale, this would be a big deal. 
getting the data wasn't actually as hard as it might think. I think actually now with all the privacy issues, I'm not sure had we started the company today, if we'd be able to reproduce the same data-based approach. But um, I think the biggest challenge to answer your question directly was integration timing. I mean, I think that back then, our integration took months and months and it was a big roadmap decision. And so it just took, it was a big, you know, it was a decision that now it's like not a big deal. It's more of a tuck in and we're much faster and more sleek and you can, you can launch us much faster. Um, but that's probably the biggest challenge back then was there's a lot of things to do in 2011 and 12. If you're an e-commerce leader and where do I pick and choose? So we were fortunate that we were a high priority for enough of them with the get-go. And, you know, when, when I'm pitched, you know, back then, and, and even now when I'm pitched, you know, new technology, you know, there's a cost, obviously, of, of running the technology beyond the implementation costs. How, how do your clients demonstrate to themselves that there's a, a benefit, you know, that at least covers the costs of working with you? And in, in fact, um, I'm sure they're all looking for a, a much bigger uh, return on their investment. Yes, uh, I would say even more so today as we head into potential downturn. I mean, the the you know the, the need to have a clear, concise um, ROI to have a very tight payback period. These things are really important. Um, there's not a lot of room for slack these days, so it's it's good to be a more mature product. Um, I would I think it'd be harder maybe right now to start out because you know you're experimenting and trying to get product market fit, we have that. Um, so I would say having been through that cycle, it's, it's interesting, Mark. I think it's different for different retailers, but if I boil the ocean, it kind of comes down to two things. One is about CSAT. You know, our, our, the product detail page is hard. It's not where you want to have a hard experience, right? One to 2% conversion rates is not a good thing if you're running a site. So it's it's about getting people to move quickly through there, and we we typically see that measured mostly in revenue per session, um, revenue per visitor. Uh, that's more I think that's more interesting than like conversion rate, which is more of the ephemeral measure measurement. Um, you know, RPS RPV looks at the relationship we're building with people, and and then it gets the uh, it, it gets at long term value, and that's the second thing. I think the more sophisticated retailers know that. While we didn't intend uh, for it to be, I think TrueFit ends up being kind of a loyalty program. Meaning, when people sign, so we have we have different types of products now, right? We have general fit advice runs, you know, fits as expected, runs big, runs small. So you've seen that. We have a smart size chart that will um, replace uh, kind of archaic size charts, and then we have the personal advice, which is people sign up. Would they get a really personal understanding of how that particular style will fit them particularly? That person, that last one, and this is kind of a sliding scale of personalization. It's very intent driven. Not every like eighty percent of people don't don't bother me. Just give me some general advice. I want to keep going. A couple of people <laughs> will go to the size charts, and then they get a bunch of engagers. So that engaged crowd, a really fascinating thing happened over the years. They reorder faster, and they're more loyal to the place that uh, in which they signed up. So that's the second thing I would say is loyalty, reorder. That's an LTV play. They don't have to reacquire that customer. So acquisition costs are lower, LTV is higher. Um, you typically see that person, you know, refine their size sampling, the bracketing, that starts to refine down. And they just become a more profitable customer. 
So those are the two things, CSAT and then like profitable customers, LTV. Yeah, CSAT being customer satisfaction. Good perspective there. You know, you talked about data. Um, there's tons of data that you're you know, collecting. Other than beyond the, the way that you're using that data to make your tools smarter, are there other capabilities that you see that brands will benefit from the collective data that you've uh, you know, now have? It's a really exciting question. Um, you know, one of the challenges I have as a, as a leader, uh, and I, I give this advice a lot to, to um, earlier stage entrepreneurs, is that you really have to stay disciplined and focused. Um, if, you, if, you're luck, if, you're, you know, if you're fortunate, come up with something really strong and you can scale that thing with strength. Um, if you get too excited about the thing over here, or over there, uh, it ends up diluting your focus and it's hard to do two things really well. So, you know, I, be, I, I feel that tension a lot. I think on the one hand, what retailers really want us to do is build a killer size and fit solution for PDPs and do that for 100% of the people that come to their product page and spend all of our time. And that is really where we're doubling down, you know, for, for brands and retailers and marketplaces and distributed commerce. There's a lot to do to do that really, really well. I would also say, though, that you're right, that there's so much richness in this data set that retailers do need. Um, and so we are starting to, um, in a limited way, you know, look at some of those opportunities. I think some of it has to do with how we can help with um, retention uh, from a mar marketing perspective. I think some of it has to do with how we can take the insights that we learn and make better product. Uh, you know, apparel is a very inefficient market. The supply chain is, is notoriously inefficient. And it's no longer just a a write-off like that's actually an economic imperative and i think it's an environmental imperative to get this to get this market into a more efficient state and i think we're 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 sitting on this fashion genome is you know has the, pro, the the connections exist inside of it to provide that insight back to product developers merchandise planning and assortment um you know the full the full value chain so we'll see over time um but right now we're very focused on like we work with hundreds of the really big enterprise ones and we've got thousands of brands that are in the genome that want us to be able to just do this with excellence in small and medium sized sites. And uh, we've got marketplaces that want it. So I think right now we're just trying to do what we do really well uh, in a distributed way before we get too enticed by some of those other things. We have a, a, a number of listeners that, you know, at various earlier stages than you are. Um, and, you know, one of the things I hear all the time is how difficult fundraising is and also it, how it, it's taken up so much more time than anybody ever expected. What's been your overall experience? And if you have any thoughts for, you know, earlier stage, you know, companies about fundraising, it'd be great to hear it. Uh, sure. I don't want to be, you know, reductive. I feel like a lot of the advice here is conventional advice. I, so I'll probably be, you know, sharing advice that's already been given, recycling good advice. But I'll share advice that I've been given that's been true. That's another way to do it. Um, I think the first is don't raise unless you need to. <laughs> uh, that sounds like common sense, but I think there's a rush toward raising capital earlier than you need to. And it's not all it's cut out to be. So not only do you get diluted and all that, but it's sort of an unnatural ingredient. Like extra capital is not always a good thing. You, it's much better to be bootstrapped and build a fundamental business that uh, has good unit economics, that is scalable, that, you know, that 
that has um, that all, has all the stuff of like a great product and a great model, and then pour capital in to scale that. And if you do that too early, you end up um, having too much moss in front of the sailboat. So that's the first uh, thing I, I would say. Secondly, uh, which is related, when you raise, you know, make sure you have those things in place because otherwise you're going to either spend way too much time raising capital because the investors just want to figure that out or, or you're going to get a lousy deal. So, you know, when you go raise, make sure you've got your fundamentals in place. Um, and the nice thing now is like, it's really clear what those fundamentals are, whether you're a marketplace or SaaS product or whatever, like it's very clear what best practices. And then, you know, I, I would say third, like, I just, I really think early stage invest, uh, early stage entrepreneurs put too much, I hear this over and over again, too much stock in the term sheet and the valuation. And I just, you know, what you learn over time is it just doesn't matter. It doesn't. What matters is, is the people. You gotta, you know, you've got to partner with the right people. This is a relationship business. I am so grateful to have incredibly pe incredible people around our boardroom. I trust them. They trust me. We're good colleagues and friends. And, you know, we all are aligned in the same way. And if you, I can't imagine not having that. And I just would say, like, you've got to have the right people on your team, on your board, et cetera. It's so exhausting. Anyone who's ever been in business with the wrong people knows how all, like, how tired. There's two types of tired at the end of the day. There's like tired because you put into hard days of work and you're like, ah, oh, I'm exhausted. And then there's that like stressful, emotionally exhausted tired from it comes from working with the wrong people. You don't want that. By the way, I would say one more if I can do one more. You know, I got advice when I was 22 from a great mentor who, um, who said to me, you know, trust, this is in deference to people that aren't sure about what to do. You know, trust, he always said, people tell you to trust your instincts. And that's true. But actually, that's number three. Number one is get quiet enough to hear your instincts. And number two, uh, which is for some people the hardest, you have to have the courage to integrate what you've heard. Number three then becomes pretty easy, which is just trust it. So those are the things I would say to an early stage entrepreneur. Good stuff, good advice uh, for those folks. So we're getting down to the uh, end of the show. I could have gone a lot longer. There's so many other questions, but I'll have to uh, ask those of you personally. Uh, so we've got this two-minute drill, seven questions, uh, one or two-word answers. You ready? Uh, yeah, let's do it. All right. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? I think I'd say Timberland. I really admire the values and, the, and what it stood for and what, how hard. I know from the inside how hard it is to be an admirable brand. And I think in a way that I don't know how this will come across, but I, I'm really inspired by TrueFit because I know what it means. I we want TrueFit to mean like true to you, and I think this idea of being true to oneself is something that everyone everywhere wants to be able to do. Um, so that for me personally, those are the things that that, uh, that inspire me. The favorite app on your phone? Probably Spotify. I do. I love music um, for different moods. So I probably Spotify. There's another one that may, many people on this may not know, which is called Safaria. Safari is a nonprofit, but it's the best organization of all of the uh, ancient Jewish texts, and that's a that's a really important pastime of mine. The Talmud and Mishnah and uh, all the ethics of, of those of those early. And I and I do whenever I can find a moment to to look at that, I, I do love Safaria. Uh, last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Faraday. 
I bought, I used TrueFit, <laughs> of course, and I bought some things from Parity, which I quite like. Nice brand and continuing to grow uh, very aggressively. Uh, yeah. Uh, at, yes. funny, uh, Alex Faraday and I, um, he was uh, gracious enough to have lunch with me uh, like March 3rd of 2020. I met him downtown. Oh, my God. Manhattan. Oh, wow. It was the last thing that I think either of us did uh, before the, you know, the world shut down. And we still talk about that. Something that you're not good at, but wish that you were. I miss continue with that other theme i am not very good at reading from the torah uh i didn't have a lot of that growing up um uh, and as a, as a jewish guy i know that may sound for people that suffer through their bar mitzvah <laughs> that sounds funny but i didn't i didn't have that that upbringing and i really am fascinated by it so you know someday i'd like to be good at that charitable organization that you're passionate about uh well a lot of them my wife and i, I try to tithe um and give away uh uh, a lot, try to give away big percentages of our of our earnings. Um, so we have a lot. Yeah, I'm very involved in the Boston Jewish Federation on the board, and I run the strategy committee and oversee, uh, which oversees the actual um, sixty million dollars of of investments we make in the community. And I'm deeply I'm deeply passionate about the idea of of um, covenantal uh, communities and and how we can strengthen. And that goes to the Jewish and non uh, Jewish uh, organizations. I, I uh, yeah, I really, I really admire the team in there that does that work. Great. If you had one superpower, what would it be? <laughs> well, I have a wife and two daughters, so I think it would probably be to understand exactly what they're trying to say and what I, what what they want me to understand. <laughs> uh, if I could. Okay, yeah. maybe maybe you should stop there because you know maybe uh, one of them will will listen. So. <laughs> no, I'm just not. I'm not good. I'm not good at night. I'm not a good enough understand. I need to do a better job of understanding English. Other than family, what's your most prized possession? You know, I'm not a stuff uh, person. I don't like stuff. So this is a hard question for me. I don't, you yeah, know, you're, I, not, I mean, you're not the first person. You're not the first person to say that, you know. All yeah, good. it's not. Uh, so, I mean, I, I don't know. For me, I don't know. I'd say my experiences. Like, I, I really value experiences. So whether that's this one talking to you, I will take this with me or the, or, you know, later reading to my daughter when she goes to bed, like that's the stuff I really, I really uh, value. I mean, I, the stuff I really care about are things like my books, my music, some guitars I like to play. I love it. That's great. Where can people reach out to you on social media? Should they want to connect Bill? I'm in a minority here. Well, I'm not a big social media guy. So this is probably a whole different episode, but uh, I, you know, from a very instant, very big, early days, I never had an instinct to be a part of it. I, I always felt like it just wasn't, I don't know, I didn't like the idea of short, you know, staccato bursts of communication. And I didn't like how things could be misunderstood. And they didn't like what it seemed to be doing to people's attention and the addictive part of it. I mean, I'm in there from a work perspective and, and trying to promote good things there. But uh, that's not how you can reach me. But you can certainly email me uh, at, at Badler at truefit.com, B-A-D-L-E-R at T-R-U-E-F-I-T, uh, dot com. And, um, I'm, I'm pretty fast on email and I, I love talking to, to, uh, he is fast on email folks, not as fast as me, but he is absolutely fast on email. That's great. So, Hey, good show, um, Bill, really interesting. Uh, you know, I, I love what you guys have done at true fit. You know, I've, I've known you for uh, quite a long time. We've never worked together. I, I've never, uh, been in a place where we could, uh, you know, benefit from the, the tool necessarily, but, um, I've, I've enjoyed, uh, our many conversations and, and thank you for making 
uh, the time in a busy day to do this with me. Yeah, it, totally my pleasure. And I would be remiss not to say Eddie Bauer, one of our, our great clients, actually, uh, who, who we really enjoy working with. So, um, Mark Freeman, it was a pleasure, uh, as always, and I'm glad, uh, glad to have had a thoughtful chat with you. All right. Well, we'll see you soon. Uh, take care and good luck to you in uh, your business and your family. All right. Thanks so much. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Bill Adler for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, product fit is one of the main reasons that people do not buy apparel and shoes online. Many of the industry analysts suggest that over the next few years, apparel online shopping will continue to grow, perhaps from 20% to 40% penetration. And companies like TrueFit were built to solve a problem. As you build your company and consider ideas, be sure that you're clear about the problem that you're trying to solve. Number two, when I asked about how they use all of the data that they collect, Bill mentioned that it's hard to do two things well. Focus is important. Stay disciplined and focused on your core product and competency. Double down on the initiatives that will drive your business and step lightly into ancillary products and services. And number three, for any business, as you spend money to improve your capabilities, you must measure the return on your investment in a clear and concise manner. It can be in the form of revenue per customer or per visit or miles traveled, but whatever one you use, you must be relentless in tracking it. It might not also be a revenue metric. It could be about your customer's satisfaction. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details. Mm-hmm.